Welcome listeners to today's episode of Public Service Psychology Now. I'm Dr. Tanisha Blue, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Fran Shahar. Dr. Shahar is a board-certified clinical psychologist and has been in private practice for over 25 years. Dr. Shahar has always focused on working with underserved and marginalized populations, such as people with severe and persistent mental illnesses, trauma survivors, juvenile sexual offenders and survivors, LGBTQ clients, asylum seekers, and helping clients who have had a psychotic episode put their lives back together. Most recently, Dr. Shahar has served as the clinical director of mental health at a women's prison in rural Georgia and has worked in state and federal maximum security prisons. Dr. Shahar has been a consultant for social security disability for the past 13 years. She has also worked in academia and as an expert witness in federal criminal cases. Dr. Shahar is certified in both cognitive psychology and psychodynamic psychotherapy. She has a passion for writing, stone sculpting, and other arts, and for helping others access their innate creativity and spirituality. Dr. Shahar recently contributed an article to the special section on prosumers in psychological services. Her article is called, When Bipolar Was Still Called Manic Depression, Getting Sick in the Era of the DSM-2. Welcome, Dr. Shahar. Thank you. Um, well, I, I am currently working um, and have been for the last 13 years as a consultant for social security disability. And I work with a lot of clients who have experienced psychosis or severe and persistent mental illnesses and um, have done various other things. Um, one, one of the uh, things that I, I do wanna comment on is, is the term prosumer. Um, I don't like it. <laughs> okay. Tell us more about that. I'll tell you why I don't like it. Um, one, it's just too cutesy for my taste. You know, it's just, and, and it's too capitalist sounding, too um, materialist sounding. But aside from that, um, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm a licensed psychologist. I'm a board certified psychologist. You can call me Dr. Shahar. You can call me Fran, but don't call me a presumer unless you're gonna call every dentist, doctor, lawyer, attorney, therapist, professor who's ever been on an SSRI or Xanax a presumer. Mm -hmm. um, it, it creates an artificial boundary that I don't think exists. I think these things are a matter of degree more so than kind. And it, it is intended to be affirming, but I feel it as um, de detracting. I'm a psychologist, period, or I'm a person with bipolar, who also happens to be a psychologist, a mother, a lesbian, a Jew, an activist, an artist, but I'm not a prosumer. <laughs> so I just have to put my, my two cents worth in on that. And I do understand it's meant to be affirmative, but don't do it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, with that said, we shall, um, I, and I appreciate that. You, you know, it's really, it's, We've talked a lot about terms lately and vocabulary and, and how they have meaning for people for, for, for people in their stage of identity, whereas people are creating labels and we're asked to put them on ourselves. So it sounds like this particular label does not fit for you. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you. So tell us more about what, about what inspired you to contribute to the article. Well, that, that's actually very interesting. I felt like I had two different angels on, on my shoulders, both, both 
who care very much about me and are very well respected clinicians. The first is Dr. Nadine Caslow, past president of the APA, uh, chief psychologist at Grady, where I happened to do my postdoc and she really encouraged me to write the article. And um, she and I have remained friendly over the years and has been a wonderful advocate of reducing stigma and telling your story and being present um, and all of the good reasons that one might wanna bear witness and all of the good that can come out of that. So that was on this shoulder. On this shoulder, there's a psychiatrist who I work with who cares equally about me and equally about these issues who kept saying, don't do it. Mm -hmm. um, people will use the information against you. You never know what could come up. If you ever have an issue with the licensing board, they'll use it against you. Um, they'll use it to um, smear your your reputation and you lose control of your privacy and you never know if there's some wacko out there who's gonna run with it and have all kinds of delusional ideas and that it's just, even in this day and age, it's not safe. So, but what he didn't realize and what Nadine did realize was that I've been coming out since the seventies. Um, I, I um, as a lesbian, um, when I was still in high school, I was at a pro-gay um, gay and lesbian, we didn't say bisexual or trans back then, just a gay and lesbian demonstration. And, you know, Channel 2 put a, a microphone in front of my face and there I was on the TV and I thought, oh, great, that's done, now I'm out. Um, I didn't realize at the time that you never stop coming out. It's, it's, it, it's, it's always, always there. And, um, you know, there was that in the 70s. And then in the 80s, I wrote for what was then the New York City lesbian feminist newspaper. So I was out again. Mm -hmm. And then in the 90s, my former partner and I were part of a trailblazing uh, lawsuit. It was the first lesbian marriage uh, discrimination case that made its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, Harvey Bowers, it's, it's old news now, but it's out there. And that we were part of taking that on um, was detrimental, was instrumental in um, the later court cases that did away with all sodomy. So, you know, one, one of the reasons that, that I came out about this as, as saying with being queer is that the single biggest predictor of positive feelings towards an oppressed group is actually knowing that group. And that only happens, if you even know one person, it only happens by people being willing to tell their story, to speak their truth. And I think when you do, it strikes a universal humanity um, in all of us, because we're all more human than otherwise, as Harry Stack Sullivan said. Um, and it reminds people of the possibilities of resilience um, and recovery. So that's why Nadine side one. <laughs> ah, well, and there's so much that resonates in that this, this concept of it's always been part of your experience to be able right. to be open with other people. And that process of coming out started many, many years ago. And, and then also this piece of how you contribute to showing people the humanity of, of others. Right, 
That's right. And, and that it's never without risk. There's always risk. Yeah. But it's a trade-off, you know. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate and value that you are coming here to talk to our listeners about this and the risk that that might be for you. Yes. Just when you think you've crawled as far out of your comfort zone as you can, the universe pushes you a little bit further. And here I am. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you. So, you know, I want to just touch on one thing from, from the article. I was, I was riveted by it. I, I, I'm a paper reader, so I picked up the journal and I read it and I read this special issue and I, and when at the end of it, I was, there was so many questions and thoughts that I had, but I, I want to say there are a lot of twists and turns. You have a lot of twists and turns Mm -hmm. to your story. And ultimately Mm -hmm. there's a positive end in the sense that your recovery is currently successful. You're, you're Mm -hmm. in a, it's successful. Can you share with our listeners, some of some highlights of things that made a difference for you. Sure, and um, and I thought a lot about this, and I thought about um, early childhood influences. Um, I was raised um, in the suburbs outside of Newark, New Jersey, where um, a lot of Jews in in my part of New Jersey came from. They all spread out of, of Newark in a very left-leaning, middle-middle-class family. Um, And there was a tremendous um, emphasis, even though my parents had not gone to college at that point, there was a tremendous emphasis on education, achievement, community service, social justice. And the message that I got growing up, um, even more than my siblings did, I would say, was that I could be anything and, and that I had, you know, the intellect and the discipline to do and be whatever I wanted to be. Um, in fact, my father was a tad grandiose about it. He wanted, he wanted me to be the first Supreme Court female justice. And I was so glad when Sandra Day got there and relieved me of that burden, you know? So that was one, one side of growing up Jewish. Another side of growing up Jewish at that time in that place, was that I was around um, a lot of Holocaust survivors. Um, My Hebrew school teachers, my friends' parents, my parents' friends. um, It was was just part of the community there. Um, It was not unusual for me to know people who had numbers, you know, tattooed on them. And I learned at a very early age, perhaps too early, that terribly inhumane things can and do happen. And that, um, you know, hearing horrible, unspeakable stories of inhumanity, but also knowing survivors and knowing people who against all the odds um, were resilient, had joy in life, were kind people, were caring people and managed to put their lives together. And that was always kind of in the back of my head, the, 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 the horrible truth that people can survive horrible, horrible things and somehow still come out ahead. Now the whole Holocaust thing also came up later because in my third, my middle psychosis, um, I believe that the Third Reich had reassembled and had taken over. And I, move, uh, I was moving my parents' um, 
heavy antique furniture into the living room and just destroying everything Jewish in the house because I was so afraid that the Holocaust were coming down, the, you know, the Nazis were, were literally coming down the street and I didn't want there to be any signs of anything Jewish. But my parents walked in and, and like everything was in this heap of garbage because I was saving them from the Holocaust and also calling my friend's parents who were Holocaust survivors saying, we have to get out, we have to get out. I mean, it was, you know, so the Holocaust thing was, was very much part of my illness. But the thing that, that allowed me to not just survive, but thrive um, is, is, was my own re resiliency, which I think is partly luck, chance. I didn't happen to get killed. I didn't happen to die. Um, there were a number of people along the way who got me into safer places. There were also people who got me into more dangerous places, but there were small acts of kindness that, that kind of got me to the next oasis. Um, and I was lucky enough that the meds worked for me. Not everybody, that's true. I was lucky enough to come from a family that had good insurance and wanted me to get well, and I wanted to get well. So that's the luck side of it. Um, the learn part of it was that I never believed that was the end of the line for me. Never, because I was supposed to be a US Supreme Court justice. <laughs> you know, thank God not. But, you know, I never believed that that was the end of the line for me. And that my parents, particularly my mother, never believed it either. Yeah. She, she knew that that wasn't the end of the line for me. And she was willing to move heaven and earth to make sure that I got the resources that I need. And also that I grew up, you know, in the sex, 1970s second wave feminism, where I had a healthy dose of question authority. Just because that man tells you you're schizophrenic, you don't have to listen to him. Now, I did listen about the lithium and the medication and everything because I strongly wanted to be well. But there was a lot that, that I knew was wrong even then. And then the third part's innate. I... Um, I have a, a really fine-tuned, I think we all do, but we don't usually have to experience it, a very fine-tuned innate survival instinct. And I listen to it. Um, and I'll give you an example of that, um, which also kind of uh, demonstrates just how psychotic I was. Um, I was um, somewhere on like Second Avenue and 57th Street in New York and I, and. I was wearing these like scrubs that were dirty. I was on the streets at this point that were dirty and messed up. And it happened to be Easter Sunday. I, I know that for other reasons. And I had this epiphany and I was thrilled to death and wondered why nobody had told me sooner that Bette, Mild Bette Midler, Gilda Radner and Janis Joplin and I were all biological sisters. And I was thrilled to have discovered this. And it's not a bad sister group, <laughs> you know. And I was, I was like quietly happy and thrilled. Just at that time, a car pulls up. There were two men in it, a, a driver and a guy in the back seat. They were of Pakistani or Indian, I, I don't know what. And the guy in the back seat grabs me and pulls me into the car and pushes me over behind the driver like that, I was no longer psychotic. And I knew with absolute certainty 
that if I went into a building with these men, I was not going to come out alive. They were either going to rape and murder me or pimp me out or traffic, you know, traffic me, but I was not going to come out alive. And they didn't happen to lock that door. So I opened the door and I jumped and I rolled into traffic. I didn't happen to get killed, but that's chance. But the fact that I jumped is instinct. So it's all three. It's it's chance, it's learned, and it's um, innate. The other thing that, that has enabled me to survive is that I take and I teach people to take full responsibility of managing their illness. It's no, Nobody should remind you to take your meds or go to bed or do anything. And that if you don't own it, if you don't manage it, if you don't claim it, it just doesn't work. You, it, 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 you have to want to be well, like you need air to breathe or it doesn't work. So that's, that's how I think about that. Probably more of an answer than you wanted, but. <laughs> wow. No. Wow. I really appreciate that. And some of the things that resonate with me are the, this theme, this continued theme of community, family, humanity, and what we're hearing a lot about in popular culture is purpose. Right. You you had this strong sense of, of not necessarily your exact purpose. You knew that you weren't going to, you didn't want to be a Supreme Court justice, but knowing right. that this is not what you, right. that at that time, that wasn't what you were on this earth to do. Right, right. It's, it's Viktor Frankl at that point. It's, it's having something to live for and knowing that it wasn't that. Absolutely. And the meds worked for me. And the meds worked for you. That's and and that's and I wanted to take them. So it's all three. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad we talked about um even one of the one of the stories that you just mentioned to goes into my next question, which is there's some lows. You do have some lows in your story. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And some of it is about the some terrible treatment by providers and healthcare workers and unsuccessful treatments. Now you, you mentioned that the medications now work for you, but you did have some unsuccessful treatments. Can you tell us about the ways that public psychology has improved since the era of psychodynamic psychiatry? I'm not sure it has. First of all, I, I think, I think that Um, there are different atrocities, not necessarily fewer atrocities. I mean, people are not getting lobotomized. Yes. People are generally not getting tardive dyskinesia. Yes. Everybody now accepts that you shouldn't have sex with your clients. I mean, these are are some fundamental changes. Um, On the other hand, um, we have criminalized mental health. And um, I most recently worked as director, clinical director of mental health in a woman's prison. Um, There isn't a woman in there who doesn't have severe trauma, treated or untreated. And um, the, the, the number of hospitals that have closed down means that there are fewer, while there were more treatments to choose from, there are fewer places to get treatment, especially long-term treatment. And while the pendulum has 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 shifted so that you know you generally most states are outlawing conversion therapy and you can't be hospitalized just for being queer and a husband can't put in a wife in, in the hospital just for being disobedient, but there are very, very few resources for parents of adult children 
um, with with serious psychopathology, and they're really left on their own to to figure it out. Um, so so things have changed, not necessarily better, just differently bad, I would say. Um, now regarding psychodynamic theory. I, I consider myself psychodynamic, first of all. I don't have a problem with psychodynamic theory. I have a pro my complaint is with good therapy versus bad therapy. Um, good therapy to me embraces the entire person and you know includes the nature and the nurture. You don't do anyone a favor by ignoring biology. You also don't do anyone a favor by exclusively focus, focusing on biology. Um, to me, um, there's a richness in good therapy, be it psychodynamic, humanistic, experiential, person-centered, CBT, whatever you want to call it. There's a richness in good therapy that goes to the heart of what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. And it's not about symptom. Uh, of course, it's about symptom reduction and relapse prevention, but good therapy is about what it means to be human, what it means to have a full life. Um, Freud said that the purpose of therapy was to increase our capacity to love, work, and play. Wow. What else is there, right? You know, so part of what I get from having been so sick and been on both sides of it is, um, one, I'm pretty good at normalizing things um, and taking the, the shame out of it. Um, I really do agree with... Maya Angelou, who was quoting Terence, that nothing human is alien to me. I mean, the good, bad, the ugly, it's, it's all part of it. Um, and I also have a quote on my website that um, freedom is what you do with what's been done to you. That's by Sartre. So that's what good therapy is. And to me, um, most of my... Um, argument wasn't so much with psychodynamic, it was with um, poorly, poor treatment, treatment that, that didn't embrace the person within the illness, as well as the illness. You need both. You need the yin and the yang, you know, so that's, that's how I think about that. Thank oh, you. I, I do want to say one other thing, too. Um, I've been around a while, you know, 25 years as a clinician. And I think part of the problem now is that we are, we are the field, and I mean the field broadly, I mean LPCs, social workers, all of us, we're producing a lot of technicians who can follow a manualized treatment. We're not producing as many clinicians. You know, you can, you can describe a human body by reading a list of the elements and the compounds, but you'll miss the essence. Um, and I, I think that's a shame. I think that that ability to listen to a symptom and hear it as a metaphor, also the decline of liberal arts education, to listen to a, an, a, a particular symptom and hear the metaphor for the person's life in that. You know, for instance, when I was sick, I, I was saying that there was a pogrom in my kitchen. A pogrom was a race riot against Jews. 
but it was also a, 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 an incredible metaphor for the environment in which I grew up. That meant there was violence, there was chaos, there was uncertainty, it was dangerous at times. And unless you get the, the cultural context, the historical context, and the literary context, you know, like dream making, you know, um, these symptoms don't, you know, there's a reason Jews hallucinate about being in the Holocaust and, and Catholics hallucinate about being in hell. It's a cultural context. You're not going to get that in a manualized book. You have to be a clinician first. End of soap opera. Well, I, I really appreciate that because you know what you're talking about. There's this is one of the critical issues of our time, right? Um, first of all, going back to where you started off with this, this issue of balance and bringing balance to ourselves and, and understanding what that balance looks like. And then this bigger context of how we train young psychologists and young mental health professionals who are coming into the field. And, um, and it's a little bit deeper than teaching somebody how to follow a manual. Right. It's a lot deeper. Yeah. It's a, a lot, lot deeper. Yeah. One of the things I have on my um, website is that the quote from Tolstoy, happy people are all alike, but unhappy people are all individually unhappy. And you need to be able to reach them where they're at and understand their particular variety of unhappy. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So as I could talk to you all day, this is very <laughs> I really, I could remember you have my phone. <laughs> uh, is there anything else that you would like to tell us about yourself or your experience? Anything you would like our listeners to know? Yeah, I thought about that a lot. And um, what I came down to, because this is also, you know, public interest psychology is that I am a consultant for social security disability. I'm one of the one of the hundred or so shrinks who decide who gets psychiatric disability in, in the state of Georgia. And I was thinking about the difference between disability that, that is acknowledged and unfortunately defining of a person versus having an invisible disability, which, which is what I have, one that doesn't usually show unless I tell people. And the problem and this also goes back to the question about have things gotten better? Yes and no. Um, you know, to be on social security disability, it's, it's an absolutely necessary safety net. You know, there are some people who just have a disease that's too strong to contain or the medication to control it hasn't been invented yet or they didn't have the resources and the privilege that I had. Um, but the program is designed to keep people marginally functional and poor, it's a, it's a sentence to poverty. You know, you can only earn so much. There are disincentives to going back to school, to learning a trade, to, it, it's not, it, it's designed to take away, not to add. Like if somebody is like maybe 80% functional, give them the 20% that they need. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's, it's dichotomous, you're either disabled or you're not. And, um, when you take away people's ability to earn a living in a society that is so driven by what we do and how we make money, you're, at, you're taking away a lot. You're, you're, you're going to the essence of what it means to be a productive person. 
um, even the word disabled, you know. Um, so when, when I review disability cases, absolutely, I look for the people who haven't figured out how to get the resources or can't get the resources or don't know how to manage their disease. But it's a good news, bad news thing. It's like, hey, the good news is you're disabled. Oh, the bad news is you're disabled. So there's that. Then on the other side of the fence, there are people like me who are highly functioning, you know, and, and people wouldn't know that I'm bipolar unless I told them I am, just like they wouldn't know I'm queer or Jewish or a mother or, you know, any other things. And what people on that side have to deal with is um, the exhaustion of constantly having to monitor yourself. What you do, you know, I mean, they're, part of the trick of staying well is knowing what your early warning signs are. What are the antecedents to the antecedents? You know, when somebody else leaves all the cabinets open and the shoes around the house, it just means they left the cabinets open and the shoes around the house. Me, it means hmm, maybe I'm spending a little bit too much money also, and maybe I need to, to check, you know, to slow down. Um, you don't know when, you're gonna, when it's gonna be used to discredit you. You don't, and, and it can be in licensing boards, in divorce, in custody battles, in legal matters. I mean, that's, that's the reality of having a invisible disability is that it can still be used against you. And also, particularly when people are newly sick, um, there's a tendency to see people as willfully bad behaving rather than ill. And they don't get the compassion and the leeway and the just, you know, give, give, give me a break. I'm having a hard time, you know? Um, so that's, that's part of it too. Um, I like this quote from Bertolt Brecht. It said, um, when, when, the, when the wound stops hurting, what hurts is the scar. Oh. And, you know, I, I carry this with me, you know, um, if you are female and young, and psychotic in New York, you're gonna be raped, you're gonna be beaten up, you're gonna you're gonna have all kinds of horrible things happen to you. You may not survive. Fortunately, I knew Holocaust survivors, so I thought, mm, maybe, maybe not. Um, but the point I think in having an invisible disability and being functional is um, to pay it forward, you know, to to remember how important kindness is for all of us. Everybody needs a break. You have no idea what people are dealing with. And, and the call for advocacy and the transcendence, using your pain to go out and reach others who are in pain. And the, the real take home message is that diagnosis is not destiny, that, that you can still have a life. You just have to be awfully lucky and work hard. So. That's what I thought of it. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you to our listeners. And thank you to Dr. Fran Shahar today for <laughs> telling us about her story and this riveting um, discussion on humanity and, the, and what we can do to understand more about each other. Thank right. you. Right. Thank you so much. You're welcome.